Welcome to The Unbiased Estimator, the podcast in which we break down why we know what we know about the complicated world of healthcare. This is Daniel Wang. I'm a medical student at the Duke University School of Medicine with a degree in economics from Rice University. I want to learn more about how the toolbox of economics research methods can be applied to improve the way that we deliver health in the U.S. Today, we're talking about hospital ownership, specifically how the acquisition of hospitals by private equity firms, a kind of investment management company, can change the services provided by the hospital due to their profitability. And to do that, we're talking with someone who's very intimate with the hospital setting. Uh, my name is Marcelo Cerullo. I am a surgical resident at uh, Duke University Hospital, and I am in my fifth year of training. Uh, so I've done two clinical years, and we do dedicated academic uh, development time for anywhere from one to one to five years. And I'm, I'm in my third and last year of academic development time, my research time, and I'll be going back to full-time clinical work in a couple of months. Dr. Cerullo received his undergrad degree at Harvard College and completed medical school at Johns Hopkins. I'm especially excited to speak with him today because of his dual role as a physician and a researcher in the field of health economics. Um, so I guess as like a general surgery resident, like what first got you interested in studying private equity acquisition? That's a really good question. Um, I did not know what private equity was. I knew peripherally. I had some friends who worked in finance and worked for VC firms and uh, investment banks. Uh, the last author on uh, the papers that we have been publishing, Dr. Agnese Ofodile, he's a friend and mentor of mine who became interested in this as part of his role in uh, health system leadership. Uh, he's a, uh, pr a plastic surgeon um, and administrator at MD Anderson in Texas. And we had floated this idea in the fall of 2018. And he said, well, just think about it and then we'll, we'll go from there. So it's been a relatively long journey thus far, but it's been very rewarding. And as we started talking about why it might be interesting to study it, a lot of uh, themes came through that reflected some of my broader interests in how hospitals make decisions, both as corporate actors and, you know, in this very weird and complicated uh, system of delivering healthcare that we have in the United States, as well as some other broader interests and, in, you know, incentives and the decision-making, you know, firm behavior, micro classic microeconomics that I've had uh, pretty much since uh, I was a college student. And do you think like your interest in kind of this aspect of healthcare came from when you first were introduced to it, or was it further down in your training? I think a little bit further on in my training. I think, you know, understanding how how the systems that deliver care get constructed and who constructs them and what decisions get made is something that's kind of out of your sight, at least in the day-to-day -day of being a medical student. You know, you don't, you don't understand how, how someone decides to open up another operating room or how to buy a CT scanner or how to um, staff an outpatient clinic. All of these things are complicated decisions, sure, but they can be understood. And I think becoming a little bit more familiar with what is involved in the day-to-day -day of each of those different spheres uh, is something that only comes with time and probably a little bit hard to wrap your mind around until you're kind of in the thick of it. Definitely by the time you're on the wards um, as a third and fourth year medical student or when you start rotations and you start, especially if you rotate at, at various different hospitals, you can appreciate how 
the same, you know, medical decisions might be made, but the environment of care might be very different, sometimes with very different outcomes. Could you talk a little bit about um, why private equity is getting involved in healthcare? I, I think some people might not be as familiar with sure. what it is or kind of what, why it's involved. Sure. So I'm going to give a very quick, very incomplete explainer of what private equity is um, in a way that was explained to me once and that I've used in talk since. So private equity, uh, private equity firms um, or private equity type investors, these are firms that have uh, that invest a relatively large amount of capital that they take from what are called limited partners. So sometimes these are retirement funds, uh, investment funds, the endowments of many very wealthy public, uh, sorry, private universities, uh, for example. Uh, and then using this money, they then on top of that borrow some, some more money from usually a very large bank. And then they buy, uh, and acquire some business. Um, and they're doing this with debt, right? The money that they borrow from the bank is called leverage. And this leverage buyout is for the purpose of getting something, some asset that is very, very large in terms of its capital flows, how much money comes in and out. And then they turn it around, even if they make it just a little bit more profitable, that amount of money that is that they're making on top of what they invested is actually quite large. Uh, and they pay back the bank. They return their money to the limited partners. Um, they're, they're the people who've actually like given them the money to invest in. They take a cut off the top for themselves. And then sometimes they will exit their position. So that can mean that they uh, unload this business or asset in the form of a uh, an IPO. They can be bought out by another firm, uh, also called a secondary buyout. Um, they can undergo a merger, or sometimes there's a, an acquisition, um, a, a merger equals or an acquisition by another entity. Uh, this is happens over some period of you know three to three to ten years, and because it has to happen relatively fast, the reorganization in the interim of that business or that entity to make it profitable and to make it appealing for the people who are going to come after. It has to happen relatively quickly. So if there's going to be a shift towards making a hospital that is acquired in this way profitable, we would expect to see it in that time. So the reason why private equity might be uh, becoming increasingly involved in healthcare is that, you know, this is 20% of our GDP, right? This is, you know, it will be soon several trillions of dollars. Um, and this is across all sectors. Hospitals specifically are a little, are in my opinion, unique because they're highly regulated. It's very hard to open a hospital. It takes a lot of investment, and that's different from you know a healthcare startup or a, pharma, a pharmaceutical startup or an analytic startup, or even something like a nursing home or an urgent care center. So when we study private equity in healthcare, uh, I think we have to understand that there's many different spheres of care that comprise healthcare. Uh, and private equity's involvement might be actually very different across each of them. I'm a surgical resident. I work primarily in a hospital and in clinics attached to a hospital. That's the space I know best uh, clinically. So I decided to, that we would study that first. Um, and that's not saying that there isn't definitely a very large role uh, to understand in other spheres that are connected to that post-acute care, uh, you know, technology investment, all that stuff. But we had to start somewhere, so that's where we started.
Right. And it's also probably really big. I've heard in like nursing homes as well. Like that's a huge thing that's been coming out. Yeah. That got a shout out in uh, uh, President Biden's State of the Union address, in fact. So, you know, this is something that's very front of mind, especially, you know, in the era of a global pandemic um, that has required a lot of very acute care and also very post acute care um, and care that kind of surrounds, um, you know, surrounds hospital care, you know, rehabs and, as you mentioned, uh, nursing facilities. And I guess looking at it from the healthcare point of view now, uh, what are some like pros and cons that you've kind of found in your research and your understanding of private equity from the healthcare side? That's that's a tough question to answer. I think um, you know this is you're asking me to make a sort of value judgment. I'm not. I I don't have any um, any financial stake in any private equity firm. I don't have any investments. I have never been employed by or paid by a private equity firm, and. The curious thing about, you know, that question, which is something that we ask ourselves a lot, is that we don't really think that we'll ever get one answer. Um, what is becoming apparent as we, you know, we, we, we work with this data more and more is that probably every single deal, um, is different from every other deal. And the motives for going into a particular position or, uh, or for any one acquisition is probably a little bit different, not just across, uh, firms, but also across time periods. Um, I think to, to answer the question, and I'm, I know I'm dancing around it. What is the pro is you kind of have to ask for whom, um, the pro for the private equity firm is probably a little bit different than the pro for patients, the pro for society, uh, the cons, Conversely, might be, you know, it might be at odds with each of those pros. So I think when we are trying to understand what we find on the back end, you know, what we find after doing our analyses, when we see something that seems, but when we see something that seems a little counterintuitive or maybe, um, in, in contrast to some prevailing narratives, we try to understand, well, Maybe this is in line with, you know, some fundamental reorganization that has had this benefit for patients in this one instance. And we have to very carefully contextualize it instead of saying, you know, private equity is, and I quote, you know, a net positive. I don't think that there's anyone who does research in this space who can, who will ever say that or say on the whole, private equity is on the whole a net negative. Um, I think it's appreciating and sitting with that complexity is really important, especially as academics, um, but also as folks who are trying to uh, trying to make recommendations at the end of this about what we think the government should do. Private equity firms have been receiving increasing scrutiny recently due to their possible roles in surprise billing and increased patient out-of-pocket costs. In the last decade, the deals these firms have made have nearly tripled in value, totaling $750 billion, that's with a B, in that 10-year window. These deals cover many sectors of healthcare, from nursing homes to physician practices for high-paying specialties like dermatology and orthopedics, to entire hospital systems, like the $33 billion buyout of the Hospital Corporations of America in 2006. The HCA had made $25 billion in revenue in 2005. The reason for private equity's interest in healthcare specifically it's possible that there's a belief that healthcare is resistant to the effects of economic recession, that there are many operational efficiencies that have the potential to be optimized, and that an aging population is projected to lead to an increase in healthcare demand in the coming decades. 
However, despite the large and significant role private equity firms play in healthcare, we don't know much about their impact on hospitals when they purchase them. One reason could be because their activity can be challenging to observe and therefore study. Sure. So the data we used um, in this particular paper, which came out in Health Affairs in November of 2021, is uh, compiled from three main sources. Um, The first is the set of hospitals that were acquired by private equity firms, you know, between between 2000 and, and 2018. And we looked at acquisitions pretty much by hand, where we looked at several different financial um, reporting databases. Then we had to find all the hospitals that weren't acquired by private equity firms. And hospitals have to fill out something that's akin to a tax return every year, just like you and I, that's called their Medicare uh cost reports. Uh, this is filed as part of what is known as the Healthcare Cost Report Information System, HCRIS, that CMS uh, makes available online. You can download uh, every hospital's you know, forms um, in the form of very, very, very large data sets with millions of rows. And uh, you know, every row is identified by a column number and a line number of this form that they fill out that is like hundreds of pages long. You can find Dukes, for example. Um, and that is the universe of the hospitals that we had to consider to be potential comparators to the hospitals that are required by private equity firms. So then we also wanted to know, well, what do these hospitals do? And to do that, to figure out if they had, you know, advanced, C- advanced CT scanners, if they had robotic surgery, if they had a cath lab, anything like that. Um, we use data that the hospitals themselves report to um, to the American Hospital Association, the AHA. So we linked each of these data together, and that that get, that gives us the hospitals that got acquired by private equity firms, and the hospitals that didn't, and then the hospitals and all of them. We link them to their survey responses. In much of economics research, it takes a lot of work to put a good data set together that can answer your question. Here, Marcel and his co-authors identified hospitals acquired by private equity, hospitals that weren't, and information about the services they provided. However, there are limitations. Private equity exits are hard to observe and can take different forms. So the authors make an assumption that the effect occurs sometime in the five years after a hospital is acquired. You bring up a really important point. We're making an assumption here that the effect, if we're going to call it that, the what happens when a hospital is acquired by a private equity firm happens in this immediate period following the acquisition. And we know that private equity firms tend to exit their position. They either sell the hospital off, they file for bankruptcy and then sell the land, something, anywhere between three and 10 years afterwards. The issue that we would run up against, and we're still running up against, in fact, is that these exits are even more opaque than the acquisitions themselves. And they're probably even more heterogeneous. So there's a lot of different ways that a hospital might be, and I put this in quotes, air quotes, unacquired. So if it's sold off to another private equity firm, if it's sold off, um, let's say several hospitals are, are, are acquired as part of the same acquisition, if one is sold for to one one buyer, another one is sold to another buyer, and the other one is closed. These are all under the umbrella of exits, and how they're structured is even more difficult to identify. 
So we figured out which hospitals were acquired. We had a pool of hospitals that we could compare them to. And we wanted to compare apples to apples as much as possible. And the methodology we used is, I wouldn't say new, uh, because it's been around for quite some time, but it's been developed especially for instances in which, as you mentioned before, Daniel, we can't randomize certain subjects to getting exposed or treated or, uh, in this instance, acquired um, relative to other subjects. We can't randomize the thing that we're studying. Now, this happens in a lot of other contexts, especially in health. You know, you can't randomize people to smoke or not smoke. You can't randomize people to get car crashes or not. That's unethical um, and appropriately so. There's instances in which doing a randomized control trial is the most ethical thing, but this is just infeasible. I don't think it'll ever happen. And also, you kind of have to figure that even if we could randomize acquisitions in 2022, we can't randomize acquisitions in 2006 and then 2008, right? We're looking at the past. So the way we have to account for not just the differences that are inherent between the hospitals that are acquired and not, is we have to account for different changes over time. So if we were to look at hospitals that were acquired by private equity firms, the first analytic decision we have to make is how we're going to account for the fact that they themselves might be different from hospitals that are not. And in large part, you know, we can do this through simple regression adjustment. So we include um, factors in our regression that are at the hospital level. Is it a for-profit institution, you know, prior to acquisition? Is it a teaching hospital? How many beds does it have? Um, does it have or in what area of the country is it? Uh, is it in is it in a rural area or not? Things that describe the milieu that the hospital is in uh, that that appear to be associated with a decision by the private equity firm to acquire it or not. The next thing we have to account for is the fact that hospitals change over time, totally independent of who owns them. Some of this is the fact. Some of this is due to the fact that healthcare itself, the practice of medicine, is changing, and that's a good thing. Um, but some of this is due to actual decisions. So we have to be able to disaggregate as best we can the decisions made by the folks that have acquired this hospital from decisions that might have been made anyway. So to do that is to, to, so to do that, what we can do is look at the differences between the acquired and unacquired hospitals overall, and then look at the differences between the acquired and unacquired hospitals in the period after an acquisition. So that difference in those two differences is where we get the name, this difference in differences method. And ultimately, the thing that we're interested in is this one indicator that tells us, are we in the period, are we observing this in the period after an acquisition or not for the private equity acquired hospitals? That indicator is our difference in differences estimator. And that tells us the difference between private equity acquisition and not private equity acquisition in our regression. The other thing that we're, you have to be careful of is, and this is more from a methodological point of view, is that if there is a slow trend in difference in, in, in the, in the differences between 
hospitals that are acquired by private equity firms and those that aren't prior to any acquisition, that this trend is not continuing afterwards and you're not identifying the differences post-acquisition as actual differences. It could be that the hospitals that are acquired by private equity firms were trending in a certain direction anyway. And this is the assumption of parallel pre-trends. This is core to any analysis that builds itself as a difference in differences. Um, there's a couple of ways of relaxing this assumption, but this is ultimately an assumption. Now you can examine your data for evidence of obvious, you know, non-parallel trends prior to acquisition. But just because you don't see trends using whatever tests you you use, doesn't mean that they're not there. So you gotta have to be you got you gotta have to be careful, um, and you gotta have to come up with a couple of different ways to to examine the period prior to any acquisition in this case uh, for large shifts in either reporting or service provision or anything like that. If you remember the example I gave about differences and differences by measuring the growth of my plants, Jake and Blake, in the episode with Dr. Ridley, I mentioned that both plants had to grow at the same rate before I added supersoil to make sure I was actually looking at the impact of the supersoil. This is formally called the parallel trends assumption. When looking at the data on a graph, you could see that the lines plotting data of our control and treatment group before the supersoil are two parallel lines. That tells us that our plants would grow at the same rate without the supersoil. So any change we do see is likely due to the supersoil. The way you examine this is there are actually, actually a couple of different ways, um, all of which have their, their pros and cons. But one way is just looking at the data, right? You can just plot things plot all the private equity acquired hospitals pre and post acquisition for whatever thing you're looking at. Let's say you're looking at mortality or, you know, what do they provide robotic surgery, something. And you look at all the hospitals that weren't, and then you just look at the graph. And then if you see some weird kinks in the two lines that don't look like they're parallel, there's your answer. The second assumption I made about my houseplants is that I didn't change anything else after adding the super soil. If, for instance, a terrible pest started attacking Jake, but not Blake, I may not be able to tell if the supersoil actually helped. These changes are called exogenous events because they occur outside the scope of the variables we capture in our model. I mean, one of the ways in which you kind of look at the the effect of this uh, this treatment, this this acquisition, uh, is as you pointed out, one of the assumptions we're making is that the changes are in- instituted almost immediately. You know, there is not just a phenomenon, but in real life, um, just because ownership changes hands doesn't mean changes happen overnight or even within a year. I mean, it takes a long time to like build a new wing or like hire additional staff. So there is the assumption here that there aren't any lagged effects, at least in the aggregate that we're, that we're attributing. Um, there's for us to ascertain whether or not there was or wasn't, um, would require that we would one have to identify sort of where the lagged effect was, and then if the lagged effect was the same across all hospitals, which probably wasn't. Um, and there's also even the effects of this lead time. So once the deal is announced, do the hospitals already start changing something, um, even before the deal gets completed? We assume that they didn't. And that's 
that is one of the analytic assumptions that unfortunately, like you kind of have to, you kind of have to contend with um, when understanding what the limits are to the conclusions that we draw from these findings. Um, We can't make any overarching statements about, you know, the period in which each of these things happen, just because each of the service lines that we've examined are themselves different, right? And a labor and delivery unit is different from buying a robot, which is different from a new high-tech CT scanners. Um, there are certain states where if you want to buy a certain type of medical technology above a certain amount, you have to get permission from the state government, you know, the certificate of need states. To recap, we have two assumptions to prove. Parallel trends, so we know the difference between the groups would not change absent the intervention. And no exogenous events, so that we know that the change wasn't due to something that we did not directly observe. Marcello and his co-authors controlled for exogenous events with something called fixed effects. So we tried to control for these things by um, by including the year fixed effects, which we think were actually very powerful, because that lets us basically treat 2009 as 2009 and not lump it together with 2008, 2007. And it lets us also treat uh it also it lets us also uh hopefully wash out some of the effects of the shocks that were experienced by all hospitals such as like the aca being passed and upheld by the supreme court the 2008 financial crisis which really put a, a crunch on any kind of capital that was able to be invested at all so those were the main ways that we thought um we we could we could account for these potential ex- exogenous shocks, the year fixed effects being the principal one. But obviously it's not, it's not perfect. Fixed effects are a way to avoid something called the omitted variable bias. Another way to say this is that it helps capture variation that we are not currently explaining with the variables we have in our data. Fixed effects um, is a term that means different things across different disciplines. So what, we're ta- what I'm talking about here specifically means that let's say you have... 10 hospitals and five of them come from the same health system and the remaining five come from, you know, they're independent and freestanding. I would include a zero or one indicator for membership in each of these six different health systems overall. And I would also include an indicator for whether I am looking at these hospitals in, for example, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, et cetera, because there's something about, let's say, the year in which the frequency of the outcome I'm interested in uh, might be associated with. So this helps us uh, absorb some variation that might be due to just the change in the healthcare landscape. So one example that, you know, in, in this period that we're studying, there was the 2008 financial crisis. Um, there was also the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Healthcare changed in a lot of really important ways. And we want to make sure that what we're looking, what we're seeing in the data is not due to these things, for example. And that's how, that's, that's the purpose for including these indicators for both the units of analysis, which are the, the, the hospitals, as well as the period in which we're analyzing this, uh, which is the year fixed effect. Fixed effects helps us answer the question. What if there's something we don't know about that's impacting our outcomes? I hope you're not tired of Jake and Blake, because they're back. Say I start selling my supersoil all across the U.S. Each state in the U.S. may have different temperatures and different amounts of rainfall. If I want to study how good my supersoil is, I would need to account for that. 
The way social scientists do this is by fixed effects. Assuming that the temperature and rainfall is consistent in that state, we create what's called a dummy variable. This is a variable that equals 1 when an observation is made in a state, and 0 when it's made in any other state. Let's say I take my soil to Texas, my home state. Maybe the climate is just perfect for my super soil there, and plants always grow 2 inches more in the Lone Star State than any other state. All observations in Texas would be adjusted in a way that accounts for this variation. This would be done for every state. That's state fixed effects, variation across units, often geographic, that can be captured in binary variables that tell our equation when an observation is in a certain unit. The same idea can be applied to years as well. This helps control for events that happen year to year, like the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Using this analysis, Marcello and his co-authors looked at how different services changed following the acquisition of a hospital by a private equity firm, stratifying by how profitable a service was. So the profitable and unprofitable services, and I should clarify, we used a list that was um, compiled by, and I think robustly examined by um, a team led by Jill Horowitz, who is a health economist and law professor. I think she's now at UCLA. And she, uh, together with Austin Nichols, uh, tried to identify which things hospitals do that make them the most money. And there's a, a, a huge, uh, this was a huge endeavor at the time. And the first of their papers uses data from now more than 20 years ago and the crucial paper that we cite was published in 2006. Now, a lot has changed in healthcare since 2006, like a lot. Um, but by and large, this list we felt was better representative of expert opinion than anything we could come up with. Now, people might quibble and say, well, this has really changed in the ways reimbursed in you know 2018. But the period we're looking at includes a significant chunk of years that is before the passage of the ACA and before the 2008 financial crisis. So I don't think we can, by the same token, we can't just come up with a list in 2022 and say, this is, should be the ground truth for what constitutes profitable. Profitable here being defined as how many dollars you're making on top of the dollars you're spending and, or how many dollars you're losing on top of the dollars you're spending for unprofitable. Um, now we treated these as the same overall. Now, they're not equally profitable. Um, you know, their margins uh, for the profitable services probably vary a lot. Um, the same as the losses for the unprofitable services also probably vary a lot. There's probably a lot of gray here. Um, and in the original paper, uh, there's even a third category of neither profitable nor unprofitable that the authors describe. Uh, and that category itself is also can be contentious in, in 2022. But we have to start somewhere, and we might as well put this out there and say, here's the list we used. So what we found, um, we found overall, uh, and this is in best highlighted in the, the third and fourth exhibit, so there's two graphs in the latter part of the paper. We found that overall hospitals that were acquired by private equity groups, if we examine their propensity and the, the percentage point change, um, after acquisition relative to unacquired hospitals uh, was highest for things like robotic surgery, digital mammography, um, cardiac cath, 
capabilities, hemodialysis. Uh, these things we thought in terms of, you know, how much money the hospital makes from it, um, as relatively uncontroversial, right? This is something that kind of makes sense. These things, robotic surgery, we know is a very huge capital outlay, but it also, you know, speeds up efficiency of better patient outcomes in certain instances. Maybe it's just a good selling point for elective cases. Digital mammography, you know, I'll, I'll get some stares sometimes from people in 2022 uh, who will say, well, I mean, that's the norm now. It definitely wasn't in the mid-2000s. And there's papers examining the utility of digital mammography, which is way more expensive than relative to conventional mammography. So the more rapid shift towards digital mammography by private equity acquired hospitals should also be taken kind of in the same way that we should be understood in the same way that we understand their shift towards robotic surgery. Uh, we thought that these represented, you know, a faster pivot towards technology heavy services. Uh, you need a cath lab, you need a robot, you need a fancy scanner or imaging, an imaging suite. Um, relative to things like hiring staff or setting up, you know, longitudinal clinics. If we look at the unprofitable services, we really didn't see any huge decreases, um, which probably we thought suggests that it's really hard to get rid of things that a hospital already, already does. Um, for especially if it has a core, um, it fills a core function in its community about, you know, for patients who need things like, uh, like burn treatment center or longitudinal HIV AIDS follow-up, that sort of thing. Um, I think interestingly, we did see a shift towards psychiatric ED and a shift away from outpatient psychiatric care. Uh, you know, in a paper that came out this month, we tried to understand what was the effect on uh, hospitals' bottom line after private equity acquisition. And we did see that there was actually a shift away from outpatient relative to inpatient services, perhaps suggesting a shift towards more profitable, you know, uh, uh, low side of care in a hospital system. So that might be also in line with that. Um, or this finding for the shift away from outpatient psychiatric care might be more in line with that. Uh, the shift towards more profitable services uh, you know, I think it's always useful for us to identify the anomalies. You know, there is one that kind of sticks out, and that's the shift away from inpatient orthopedic surgery. And especially in an era of enhanced recovery after surgery and more and more surgeries being, more and more operations um, being conducted in an elective ambulatory or outpatient setting, orthopedic surgery has been one way in which that has really been revolutionized. Uh, people are getting their knee scopes and shoulder scopes uh, in outpatient settings, knee replacements even, you know, with, uh, with a local anesthetic infusion so they can now go home with. Um, being able to make these shifts, not just, uh, not just uh, uniquely compared to other hospitals, but just maybe faster or, or more aggressively, is something that is, should be unsurprising even though we put that on the list of profitable services. Keeping someone in the hospital for longer than they need to is less profitable for sure. So that's why it's we have to, you know, identify the anomalies, figure out if we think that that's, uh, you know, indicative of a trend or a very useful, or a very useful um, uh, comparison. And, you know, we by and large saw these same things even when we subset our hospitals, as I mentioned before, 
into these uh, hospitals that comprise the Hospital Corporation of America and those that were non-Hospital Corporation of America hospitals. Um, kind of telling us that, you know, what we found is what we found. And this is... Uh, this is this is sort of where where we have to sit and in understanding what happens to these hospitals bottom line or to their patients we'll have to make with the lens that these these findings come for yeah i think it, all the research here has to be modular you know it's impossible to tell one story using only one set of data about private equity firms and hospitals and examining each of these as you as you pointed out like each of our our, our findings well, I think they, they, they do stand on their own. They're almost best understood in context of what the just descriptive, the, our first descriptive paper that shows sort of where this, where these hospitals are. Um, and then with a really important paper that came out a little bit afterwards, uh, that describes the changes in the cost to charge ratio and global quality metrics using aggregated data. And that in itself is helpful to understand when we examine, uh, when we examine the changes in the services themselves. So these all have to be kind of considered together and, and, and together they make up a, I think they tell a better story than any of them on their own, um, about what's going on here and also kind of what we should look for, uh, when we, when we, um, when we try to ask other questions that are related, but not exactly this. In summary, Using predefined categories from Horowitz, the authors found that, following private equity acquisition, some profitable services like robotic surgery, digital mammography, catheterization, and hemodialysis increased, many unprofitable services did not change, and an interesting rise in psychiatric emergency services and fall in outpatient psychiatric care was observed. With these results, I was curious who Marcelo thinks drives profitability and the supply of services. That's a wonderful question. Um, I really, I really appreciate that question. That's it's it's also a very thorny one. So let's 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 take it apart. Um, the one question you asked was is so who's 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 causing what to happen? Like this is sort of a chicken and egg problem because we didn't just decide um, in 2022 to uh, pay doctors X amount of dollars for. Let's, I'm going to make something up for doing a robotic hernia repair or doing a cardiac catheterization. There's a long, very important, uh, and detailed and complex and problematic line of series of decisions that decided that a unit of work, um, was going to be worth a certain amount, uh, for the provision of each of these things that we think comprise healthcare. So everything from how long you sit with a patient in clinic and the complexity of their med- understanding the complexity of their medical problems, that is assigned a unit. The doing a cardiac catheterization is assigned another number of units. Doing a mole removal in a dermatology office is a certain number of units. You know, giving someone a vaccine is a certain number of units. Doing a heart and lung transplant on block is a certain number of units. These units help us to, and not just help us, they are, they were supposed to be designed to account for the effort and the resources involved in providing each of these things in medical care. Now, medical care obviously is longitudinal, as we've learned kind of painfully 
as a society in the past two years, things that are actually valued least, assigned the least number of units, which is actually giving someone a vaccine. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know. I don't know if that's the lowest, but it's, it's pretty low, um, is not paid very well, right? It is not accounted for, even though it probably has the most benefit. Um, and these units have been, they've been revised, uh, by CMS over the years and they're used to determine compensation, uh, and not just salary wise, but also, uh, it, they structure the incentives for the people who are doing these things. So if you're paid more to do something, you will probably do that thing. Uh, and as much as we like to talk about medicine being a calling, not an occupation, um, we know that doctors do things if they're paid to do them. Um, and they don't do things if they're not paid to do them. So figuring out the net benefit to society uh, is slightly separate from figuring out why the provision of services that comprise medical care might not be exactly aligned with the vision of this, uh, this utopia that we might have for how public health and hospital-based care and post-acute care and all these things intertwine. I think they, you know, again, this is sort of a, it's, it's, it's sort of chimeric. I think that as we see that hospitals might do things for which they're paid to do, do more of, um, that, this drives investment and in turn they do more of them. So if you're paid more to do robotic surgery, you will do more robotic surgery and then someone else will pay you more to do it. So it, it kind of, it, it feeds into itself. Um, I don't know which one came first, but we do have a way of asking this question by looking at instances in which there has been su sudden and sometimes very abrupt changes in reimbursement and comparing them and what the outcomes are at least, you know, to potential comparators. I'll use an example. Uh, in Maryland, hospitals get paid or all payers pay the same rate for the same thing. Um, sorry, so pay the same rate for the same thing in the hospital. So there's a global budget system and I'll use my alma mater, Johns, Johns Hopkins, um, gets paid the same for doing, let's say, a hernia repair uh, irrespective of whether or not it is paid for by Medicare, paid for by uh, Medicaid, paid for by Blue Cross. This rate setting is done by a commission, the uh, Health Services Cost Review Commission, the HSCRC of Maryland. And you can, the nice thing about Maryland is that it has like seven border states. So people come to Maryland for their medical care because it's the closest hospital. And people also, you know, go just outside of Maryland for their, their health care because it's also very possible. So you can look to see what happens when hospitals are subject to very different reimbursement uh, structures and financial incentives across across state lines. Um, now, is this a project I've done? No. Is this project someone else is doing? You bet. Because the Health Services Cost Review Commission has to justify to CMS why it should be exempted from... Um, from uh, other rulings for how uh, government funds are, uh, are used to pay, pay hospitals for medical care. But that, I think, might be the start of understanding the extent to which these financial incentives may lead to like worse outcomes for patients or better outcomes for patients. I don't know. Um, I think it's very hard to disaggregate 
who's doing what and for what reason, and then coming up with this narrative, you know, if only we had a flat rate for every procedure, we don't. Um, that's, that's, that's really hard to do, right? There's no, there's no randomized trial for that, but there's something pretty close. So I think it's possible to study. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, I do think like the point about like how physicians are also economic actors is like something very mm-hmm. important to remember too. Yeah. I think like something that's really interesting is like watching how, um, competition for specialties changes over time, mm-hmm. how the job market for different specialties change over time, mm-hmm. kind of based on how the treatment environment changes. Like for example, with oncology, um, radiation treatment has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. People are spending a lot less time in, um, getting radiation treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some specialties have not had as high reimbursement rates or don't get reimbursed as much anymore mm-hmm. because of the changes in treatment changes. So, yeah. um, it's really interesting to kind of consider both as like a health provider and someone who is interested in studying these issues. Um, you know, all the ways yeah. that those factors interplay. There's a ton. There's, there's, there's a ton. I mean, I think, I think the worst thing we can do is assume that if physicians don't respond to financial incentives or hospitals don't, because that's, that's just not true, right? That's, that's like a fan. It's a very fanciful notion. I think it's, I think it's, um, at one point when I was in medical school, that was sort of assumed, like, of course we would never do anything different just because we get paid differently to do it. And, and I think that that's, um, while, while a noble thought is not, is not the case and that is okay. Right. I think understanding exactly what's going on is involves being, being aware of or, or confronting this truth. Um, and, or this reality rather, and figuring out how certain policy levers can be exercised to make sure that we do deliver just and equitable and timely healthcare to everybody. Uh, but ignoring it, I think is not, is not an option. An example of this is in the study we talked about in our first episode with Dr. Ridley. In the supplement to his paper on how Medicare reimbursement increased drug launch prices in the outpatient setting, the authors predict that this new reimbursement method that began in 2005 actually harms some providers. Hematologists and oncologists administer many costly drugs. In 2004, prior to the change, hematology and oncology had the highest average income of all specialties at about $500,000, much higher than the second highest, orthopedic surgery at about $400,000. After the change, hematology and oncology income fell to about $300,000, while orthopedics rose to almost $500,000. And with this change, Medicare spending saw a fall from 80% to about 70%, with most of the prescriptions moving to the hospital setting because they were still profitable due to a higher procedure fee. This is one example in which such policies and practices can influence incentives for providers, it could potentially impact who goes into a field and how much a field grows. And I think that as physicians or as medical students, um, thinking more about it can be beneficial to Definitely. patients. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that there's a study out there that shows that most doctors are not great at estimating how much a procedure costs for a patient. No, they have no clue. <laughs> it's, 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 I, mean, I mean, yeah, they even have, I mean, they started, like, just putting the, the, the list of how much something costs, like, on the on different supplies and in, in operating rooms. Oh, really? Yeah. So like you open this package and that's $200. <laughs> you, know, you, I would love to see yeah. a study on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, ama- it's pretty amazing. Um, and I can't speak to anything that's happening here at Duke, but there's, there's a lot of like very interesting, like what happens when people are just giving the information? Like, does it, does it actually change what you're like, does it actually change what you're going to do? I don't know. Um, but it's, we're, we're not, telling them not to or just giving them the information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there, there seems to kind of be like 
two kind of competing schools of thought in terms of like one is like you always want to try to provide the best care possible for a patient um, and do the best by them. Mm -hmm. But then also, I think more and more we start to see that healthcare is very expensive in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and people can get crippling amounts of debt mm -hmm. from getting a life saving saving procedure where you know they're living their life, but now they're paying just incalculable amounts of money to the hospital. For yeah, it. Um, I think everyone goes to medical school probably for. Uh, for reasons that take the form of, you know, you like science, you like helping people, and you want to figure out how to do that in some applied technical way. Um, I think that those things are definitely still true. I think my understanding of how the health system works uh, has become a little bit richer, a little bit more nuanced, and definitely a little bit more sanguine. The, uh, you know, I think one of the more um, personally rewarding aspects of this is that in trying to understand how these decisions get made way above my head, it's been interesting to know that with a little bit of data and some, some applied math, I can try to understand the extent to which it might impact my work as a physician insofar as what kinds of services we're not just offering, but able to provide, um, to, to, to patients. But this isn't something that we kind of like learn day to day, in medicine. Definitely not. I don't think there's a lecture. Maybe there will be once there will be someday, but I remember my um, economics of healthcare lecture was 30 minutes in my first year of medical school. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And that's where they explain Medicare and Medicaid. And if one can even do that in 30 minutes, I think the, the words are on the screen. I don't know how much me or the rest of my class took away, but hopefully, you know, using several different kinds of case studies, we can understand how things have changed, even just in the last, you know, in the last uh, decade or so. So how did Marcelo learn what he needed to get involved in this area of research? Um, I've been very lucky. I did my, um, I did not come to medical school thinking I would study this kind of thing. And I didn't definitely didn't come to residency thinking I'd be doing this. And when I was first told, Hey, maybe we should look at private equity group acquisitions. I was like, why? Um, I think understanding the framework is, as you've hinted at, Daniel, is, is even more important or, or even more important to under, to, to, to understand in trying to figure out not just what gets you out of bed in the morning, but also like how you can make an impact. Um, I took a couple of mathematical microeconomics classes when I was a, a master's student. And I did that in between my third and fourth year of medical school. So it was 2016, 2015 to 2016. Um, and since then, uh, there has been a lot of work by some dedicated applied econometricians. And I think there's been a revolution in economics that has been, uh, publicized and lauded even more recently than it, I think ever has been the winners of the, uh, Swedish bank prize, the Nobel equivalent this past year were, um, a set of, uh, applied economists, some of them theoreticians, who developed precisely this work. Um, some of the best work, uh, David Card uh, is one of them, Alan Kruger, uh, who co-wrote his paper, who sadly died of suicide uh, several years several years ago, um, probably would have been one of the other winners. And they were some of the first to explore uh, these natural experiments in ways that related to everyday problems that we often ask ourselves. 
There's been a lot of wonderful resources that are, I think are very accessible. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to rec recommend books. Some of them better for lay reading. Some of them with a lot of Greek letters. Uh, but the lay reading ones and people you can just find on either on Twitter, um, a whole bunch of uh, better software packages for you know doing regressions that compute in a matter of minutes as opposed to a matter of days. And these have been very enriching just because the potential for being able to answer questions now, I think, is the greatest it's probably ever been um, in this field. And I think the data that has become available for doing so is also probably the most granular it has ever been. And if you're interested in a particular niche, a clinical niche in medicine, if you really care about, um, if you really care about like one disease process or you care about one particular market or state or whatever, you can, you can do that. Uh, if you're interested in broad national trends, what happens in the aggregate, what happens with policy set at the federal level, you can do that too. The tools are very, are, 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 are broad, are broadly powerful. And that is what's really nice, I think, about this. Um, I've had plenty of great mentorship from some very, very, very smart uh, economists throughout that's kind of guided me towards these things. Marcelo also brought his own valuable knowledge into his research in his role as a physician. Conversely, as I've sat in on some seminars, being the one clinician has been helpful because I now know how these things are talked about by non-clinicians. And sometimes I can say something useful, um, like that's not how you know, that drug works or that's not how we prescribe that. Or usually we don't do that procedure for this thing, you know, something like that. Um, but that's also important to understand, right? There's some, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, a, a complementarity to the two, the two fields. I sat in like many econ seminars where someone points out that, well, you know, this might be the perception because it's the way it's reported and, you know, anecdotes don't constitute data. Uh, and I think understanding that perspective is extremely important when you're thinking about policy levers. Um, and the extent to which, I mean, I'll say this, I, I'll talk to my colleagues, I'll talk to surgeons who say, well, the last time I did this, this happened. And there's an extreme amount of anchoring bias or a hyper-focus of your own specific situation and experiences that might be, you know, intense and important and very relevant to like your day-to-day -day, or even the day-to-day -day of your health system but is the exception rather than the rule in academic medical centers. All, understanding that and having those two perspectives is, is, is super important. Always have people who are not, or experts in things that, that you're not in working with you because they'll, it's like broadly applicable advice, but especially for this kind of stuff. Um, you know, we wrote this, we wrote these papers with, um, with, you know, card carrying, uh, tenured, econ like tenured academic economists on board, and going through each of our questions and making sure that we were able to answer them robustly and helping us understand what the, what the, what the pitfalls were to some of our, our methods, as well as sort of whether or not what we were saying kind of made sense. For anyone who's listening to this episode and wants to learn more, I asked Dr. Cerullo how he recommends you can get involved. Um, the best way, I think, to become to become a little bit more acquainted with the types of questions is to take a look at the cover of, of some journals. Um, you don't have to actually read the articles. You can get them in your inbox and look at the table of contents and just know what is the thing that is being written about in 
things like the New England Journal of Medicine or the Journal of the American Medical Association or Health Affairs or Health Services Research, um, which is another like, a little bit wonkier academic journal. Uh, read the news <laughs> is, is the other one. There's a lot going on now, especially in the ongoing global pandemic that has profoundly stressed and affected different aspects of the healthcare system, some of them having nothing to do with vaccines or viruses. Understanding what those are and at least how they, how they impact people leads you to the kinds of questions that make you wonder about the inefficiencies that need to be quantified so they can be understood so that they can be eradicated or, or rectified via policy. Um, that's kind of where I think the best place to go for regular information. Um, now the wonkier stuff or the stuff that is, I think not specific to medicine, but maybe specific to, to, to economics. Um, there's some fantastic, uh, econometric seminars that if you have, you know, a little bit of a math background, you don't have, you don't have to have taken real analysis. I didn't, you don't have to have, um, even taken a stats class. But if you want to understand the concepts, at least kind of see how people talk about these methods. There's a couple of, in the era of everyone doing stuff by Zoom, there's some great seminars that are like every couple of weeks that are free as long as you just email the organizer. Um, so there's a, couple, there's a professor for, for example, uh, there's a professor out at a University of Colorado. Her name is Chloe East, East like, not West. Um, she's, a, she's an economist. She's a health economist uh, who runs a seminar on these methods papers where they actually look at the econometrics papers and go through some examples. A lot of people share code. They share, they share, um, they share uh, some test data sets. And you can kind of follow along. You can also ask stupid questions, um, which I do a lot. <laughs> and that is how you can try to understand, well, maybe what I'm interested in is this phenomenon in this clinical setting. Here's a way I could study it. Or I see that there's a way to study this thing, but there's other different relevant, there's someone studied this one phenomenon, there's one phenomenon in a, you know, X clinical setting. I'm interested in Y clinical setting or a different, or a different context. You can kind of start mixing and matching and realizing that there's a lot more potential for, uh, for like using the same methods in different places um, or looking at the same places, but using slightly different methods to understand what exactly is going on. So I know that was sort of roundabout, but I think start, I, I you know, start, start, start with some of the content stuff and then do what you like. If you want to be an oncologist, like, okay, there's a ton of stuff about, the efficacy of cancer drugs that, and whether or not they are or are not related to how much people we pay for them. Um, that is not just not well understood. We don't even know it's good. And that's, that's the place that's a career. Um, if you're interested in, you know, examining quality of life, measures of quality of life and reimbursement for it, you know, in palliative care, there's a whole lot of stuff that we still have to understand because ultimately these are decisions that real people are making. So if we can understand a little bit about, why there are differences in the decisions that are made because of the context, because of the incentives, then we can hopefully make the better one.
Well, Marcel, I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for sharing your very thoughtful and very nuanced perspective on these issues. You're too kind. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Um, thanks so much for having me on. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to The Unbiased Estimator. The link to the paper we discussed today and other studies cited in this episode can be found at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. To hear more from Marcelo Cerullo, you can follow him on Twitter at Marcelo Cerullo. He and his co-authors also recently published a follow-up study in JAMA Open Network looking at the effect of private equity acquisition on outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries. Dr. Suro's information and a link to his most recent paper will be linked in the show notes and the website. I'd love to hear what you thought about the show. You can send comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes by email at unbiased.edst at gmail.com. That's unbiased.est at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at DanWangMed. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes and the website. The Unbiased Estimator is a production of the Duke Medical Economics and Decision-Making Interest Group. You can find more information about our group at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. This podcast was produced and written by me, Daniel Wang, and mixed by Ankit Chowdhury. All views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of the Unbiased Estimator's staff or advisors. If you like this show, please support us by rating it on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. One disclaimer I want to give on the content of this podcast is that I'm a medical student. Emphasis on the student. All content related to health information in this podcast is for general information only. Any questions about your own health should be directed to your medical provider.